Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Today is, well, at least the day that this goes live on all the syndication services, July the 29th, 2021. And it is episode 2,919 of the Survival Podcast. The way I say, the reason I say it that way is because actually, Right now, if you're listening to this as it is uh, released or soon after it's released, I'm either fishing or just about to be done fishing um, out on Lake Tawakini in Texas. Uh, I took today and went out with my grandson and Nick Ferguson to go fishing, so I'm actually recording this the Saturday prior uh, to the Thursday that you're hearing it on if you're listening to it as released little lifestyle design tip, build a business that allows for this type of flexibility in your life and you can have more recreation time. Anyway, um, we still have a great show for you just because I recorded it early doesn't make it any less great. And I have a great lineup of expert council members for you today. Let me remind you, if you want to ask a question for one of these shows with the expert council on it, go ahead and email me. Jack at the survival podcast.com. Make sure the uh, you put TSPC expert in the subject line of the email. That way I'll make sure I find it and I'll know what it's for. Ask your question up front, right away, straight out of the gate. My question is for expert council member, fill in the blank. My question is one sentence question with a question mark at the end of it, the way they taught you how to do when you learned how to write English in like fourth grade in school. Then you can hit return and give all the details you want. If you start out that way, you'll be really clear on what you're asking. I'll understand it. The expert council member will understand it. And you're a lot more likely to get an answer at all. And if you get an answer, you're a lot more likely to get an answer that actually helps you. So make sure we drill down to the question. Trust me in this. I've been doing it for 13 years, and I am a professional. Anyway, uh, let's start off with who we're going to hear from today. Paul Wheaton, we haven't heard from him in a while. He's going to tell you about willow feeders, which when I saw that in the subject line, I didn't know what the hell it was. It's for dealing with human waste in off-grid communities. That's something Paul is building extensively. is an off a wonderful off-grid community up in the wilds of Montana. So he'll talk about willow feeders and what they are and how they work. Building a battery bank with a 48 VDC golf court, uh, a cart for Sean Mills, and he'll get a little bit of a lesson in where uh, solar really pays off as well in addition to that on this one, and you'll get to hear Sean mock my misery of living on a limestone slab yet again. Doc Bones will talk about dealing with a thumb injury, which is a complex and, 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 and actually very restrictive injury to deal with, especially in an austere situation, which is what Bones specializes in preparing you for. Nick Ferguson will talk about using the leftover feed fermentation liquid if you're feeding fermented feed to your livestock, and along with that, more of an integrated systems thinking overall. Tim the Toolman Cook will talk about expanding handyman services in the fall and pool cleaning and some other stuff. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about dealing with egg allergies and staying on keto or getting enough uh, of your protein and fats if eggs are not part of your diet. And how maybe to get around this issue. I have some thoughts on this as well, and I have some really relevant real-world experience with my customers on this one. Chef Keith Snow will talk about making Korean-style barbecue. And then I'll have a quote of the day for you for my segment at the end. Um, this was by uh, 
uh, former Supreme Court Justice Louis D. Brandeis, and he was appointed by Wilson, not my favorite person in the world, and served all the way up through FDR, not my favorite person in the world. And uh, Mr. Brandeis has some uh, definite uh, legal opinions that I would disagree with and some that I would uh, concur with. But this quote I completely agree with, and you've heard different versions of it throughout history, and it's absolutely true. He said one time, most of the things worth doing in the world had been declared impossible before they were done. So I'll end the show talking about that. And with that, let's go ahead and jump on into it. Let's hear what the heck a willow feeder is and what it has to do with dealing with waste from Paul Wheaton. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. I'm here with Des, and we're going to talk about a general overview of our willow feeder designs. And so... A lot of farms will have outhouses or composting toilets or things like that. And and I kind of want to start off with the idea of what we want to do. One of the things that we want to do is we want to come up with a design that is in every way superior to uh, a sewage treatment plant, which is better than a septic tank with a drain field, which is better than most outhouses. And and so at the same time, we have events, and it's kind of like, boy, we need more places for people to poop. And so we wanted to come up with, with something that would be um, far better than one of those little blue huts, you know, with the chemical junk in it. Um, and so we originally called this design the wheelie bin toilet, and I still see people on the Internet using that name, Um I kind of want to talk about how you know the stuff that we're, the stuff that we're talking about here is not waste. I mean, this material is full of carbon and nitrogen, and if we compost it, it just goes up into the atmosphere. So I mean, you can compost something to the point that it's just ash, and there's and then it's like like you can fill up one of these bins, and then um, it ends up being only two percent of that, and it's just ash. Everything else is gone, and there's lots of fascinating, interesting biological ways to to do that. But the carbon and nitrogen, that's the same stuff we want to get onto our growies. And so it's kind of like we don't want that stuff to go up into the atmosphere. On the other hand, I think that uh, um, when we talk about um, the humanure system with Joseph Jenkins, then uh, he's talking about do not fear your poop. And, and I want to come around and say, no, please, please fear your poop. Um, there are pathogens in there to be concerned about. And, of course, there's more to it. It's about, like, you, you can't really make yourself sick, but you could make others sick. And so when we're talking about how to get something that will scale well on a large scale, something that's better than a sewage treatment plant, we need to be considering those pathogens. So now, when you do a composting toilet, that material breaks down, goes up in the atmosphere, and we want to keep it. But we have concerns about pathogens. And so if you take that bin and you set it aside for one month, about 98% of the pathogens will be gone. If you wait six months, about 99.99% of the pathogens will be gone. We wait two years so that it's like 99.9999999999% gone. It's, you know, it's, it's pathogen free for all practical purposes. Uh, and this kind of assumes that, you know, do we have a batch that started off with pathogens? Probably not, but this is just to be safe, just to be super safe. We call it a willow feeder because we get the material in the bin, and now we call it willow candy. 
We set it aside for two years. We mark up the bin to say something about how the bin is, uh, it was closed on this date and do not open until this other date two years later. And uh, when spring rolls around, we grab several of the bins and we put it at the foot of several willow trees. Um, our system also has a urine diverter. Urine is, for all practical purposes, sterile. We encourage people to, you know, pee all over the place, uh, it's, uh, especially for those plants that really love the nitrogen. Um, and uh, uh, I think I think that's it. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, Des. What have you got to add? Um, I've had the honor of using uh, <laughs> some, this system for a little while, and it's awesome. I love it. It's, uh, you know, kind of outdoors, so it smells less. Um, it's There's no flush, so it's like one step, one less step in the process. Um, there's two things that I kind of thought of while using it. It's like the plastic bins is super convenient, but is it lined up with, because it's plastic, yeah. with permaculture stuff, and then... The other thing is the urine, diver- urine diverter, it kind of, um, in my opinion, it's a little too close for comfort. <laughs> so then it makes me think like, well, what would be a design that's more roomy, more spacious? Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't had, you know, I haven't really put much thought into it. There were just two things that I just thought of while using it. So now we have three willow feeders. We have the original one, the Chateau des Poux. Uh, and then we have the one here at Base Camp, uh, Willow Bank. Uh, make your deposit now. <laughs> yep. And then we've got the third one, Willow Wonka. Now, Willow Wonka has uh, an improved uh, urine diverter um, based on the exact concerns you're talking about. So I take it you have not yet been to Willow Wonka. I, yeah, I guess I haven't. Okay. I've been right. to the Chateau and the one here at Base Camp, but not that one. So I, I feel like this topic, I have about four hours of stuff to say, but um, this is just to give a quick overview. So, um, <laughs> Jack, I, I hope that's a, uh, a, a quick idea of, of what we do here. I've got tons more to say, but uh, uh, I think I think that's it for now. You got one more thing, Des? Yeah, the importance of the the urine diverter is so that it doesn't mix with the the willow candy, is it? Right, the willow yeah. candy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. So usually we have the... Uh, the urine going out uh, and mixing with the um, the water that's from the sinks to wash your hands, and then it goes to a uh, gray water mulch pit. Um, but yeah, the the willow candy we set aside for for two years, uh, and then when we uh, we started out, our original designs were not good, um, and so we had to do some trial and error. Now we're doing now we're doing really well, and so uh, we put a, a few inches of sawdust in the bottom. Uh, and a big tube. We've got this four-inch piece of uh, plastic tube that goes in, and it's got a jagged bottom. And the idea of the tube is to help dry out anything at the bottom, that may, any liquids that are in there. Um, and then when we're done, we put a couple of inches of sawdust on the top, and then we set it up aside in the Willow Candy Warehouse. And uh, when we pull it out, um, it's about half the size and smells like soil. And so I think it did pretty good and it's pretty dry which is kind of how we want it we want to preserve it we want to make we kind of like want to make poop jerky (laughs) all right that's enough information for today poop jerky (laughs) thanks jack
while it does begin to border on TMI, it is something that I think we need to be thinking more and more about if we're going to develop self-sustaining communities. Um, I don't think we're going to change the way the average city dweller deals with waste. And I don't think you need something maybe this involved for uh, you know one person living on a few acres. You start building the type of civilizations that you know we claim we want to build, and all of a sudden, I mean, it adds up. When we do our workshops here, um, we we rent. I believe last time we rented five portajons, eighty people. Five days, and this is going to send them another TMI, but it's the truth, and we need to address these problems. We end up with mounding problems. Uh, <laughs> not good. Uh, we need to be able to deal with this issue, and it's good to see Paul doing work on how to deal with this issue. And I, I will say that I agree with him with his, you know, don't, don't be afraid of your poop. I don't think we need to be horrified of it, but I do think we need to be honest about the potential for serious disease outbreak especially when you bring lots of people together without an effective waste management solution. Anyway, with that, let's go on and talk about something a little less uh, bodily function derived. Let's talk about building a battery bank and getting backup power from a 48-volt golf court with Sean Mills. Hey, guys, it's Sean Mills with Hack My Solar. Here to answer a question on solar energy and more specifically, can I use a golf cart as a temporary temporary battery bank for a solar array? So, uh, Jason says, going to get solar put in over the next couple years, hoping there will be better incentives to come. It will definitely be grid connected, but I will for sure have a transfer switch or maybe a hybrid inverter slash auto switch. I am wondering if I could use my 48-volt golf cart as a battery bank in the case the grid is down and I am on solar only. This would allow a lot more flexibility in a temporary grid-down situation, and I wouldn't have to invest in a battery bank just yet. Obviously, there's a lot more to it, but is it worth digging into? Thanks, Jason. Hey, Jason, yeah, absolutely you can use your 48-volt golf cart battery bank as part of a hybrid or behind-the-meter power system. Uh, so the biggest issue with hybrid inverters is not the inverter itself, it's the amount of panels a normal grid-tied house needs to operate without any reduction in usage. You know, to attempt to offset a ridiculous amount of usage, you need a ridiculous amount of panels, resulting in the need for super expensive inverters. This is why I always advocate for a bit of lifestyle design before designing a solar array, and if buying new or building from scratch, an earth contact structure is always a good investment. Uh, this is going to reduce your heating and cooling um, expenditures of energy, which are always the biggest in any um, home, at least in the United States. This is why Jack's place isn't great for solar. I mean, he's got a lot of great Texas sun, which is good, but he sits on a limestone slab, so he's got no basement to retreat to in the Texas summer. And, well, like I said, he has a Texas summer that lasts like half the year. So there's a big cooling load um, during the time of year where the panels are hotter, so they're less efficient, meaning you need more panels, um, cooling specifically is just a very, very ineffective uh, or inefficient use of electricity. Uh, you need a lot to cool a relatively small space. Um, 
so you know so you got some issues there if you've got the ability to kind of design the plan from the ground up uh, that's what I always say start from below the ground up uh, now years ago when hybrid inverters were super expensive I did do a few episodes on what a grid tied inverter with behind the meter storage and the ability to have a secondary off-grid inverter with a manual three-way switch would look like but since you since then you have had inverters that can run on solar only when the grid is off uh, hit the market as well as the price for hybrid inverters come way down. Um, so what you would want is a hybrid inverter that is set up for a 48 volt battery bank. You would need to park your golf cart as close as possible to that inverter to minimize the length of the DC run to save money on cabling. And then it's really plug and play. Panels plug into the inverter, uh, normally after going through a combiner box or optimizers or both. Then your battery bank, in this case, the golf cart batteries, plug into the hybrid inverter, which is also a photovoltaic charge controller. So we'll take that DC or AC and keep your batteries topped off. And then the inverter plugs into your main box or your meter, depending on the local coach. Um, the problem is there's not really a lot of juice in a 48-volt golf cart battery bank compared to the amount of energy that a normal house needs. Uh, you know, you're talking about on the high end, 250 amp hours at 48 volts. Um, you know, you're not talking a lot of, about a lot of usable watt hours there. Um, so, so again, it's not, it's not that you can't do this. It's that, is it really going to do what you want? I mean, you could run your house for like three hours and then your batteries would be dead and you'd have to buy new batteries. Um, uh, you know, unless you were really, really, um, careful about how you use that, the electricity once you switch, switched over to the golf cart. And at that point, is it really worth having the whole solar array and everything else? Uh, from a prep standpoint, I would go big generator first. Um, an off-grid inverter, inverter that goes with the golf cart second, like maybe a 3,000-watt inverter uh, that you can get off of Amazon for about 200 bucks uh, that just stays with the golf cart. You know, that way you could take that anywhere you wanted to. You could run, you know, from the garage or, or wherever you're the, you were going to have the golf cart parked anyways into the house with extension cords. Uh, I would go solar hybrid third and with a permanent battery bank of very close fourth. So even once you go solar hybrid, uh, again, you just, there's not really that much juice in that, um, in that golf cart battery. So, so maybe I go big generator, gas storage and um, off-grid inverter that can run either off the car or off the golf cart. Do that in, in step one and then wait to get your solar put in um, when you're ready to do a full big-time big battery bank. That being said, with a solar hybrid system, you don't have to have a battery bank. You can go inverter, panels, grid, and then add the battery bank on, on the backside whenever you're ready. Uh, so I hope that helped you out, Jason. Yeah, a lot to think about. Um, but yeah, that's the answer to your question. Keep them coming in. I've got some backlog to work through. Uh, had to take a couple of months off to uh, address the day job, but I'm back at it and answering questions for you guys. Thanks. All right, next up, let's hear about dealing with thumb injuries with old Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Karen, who writes, Here's a question for Doc. Do you have any advice for recovering from a hand injury, especially the thumb joint? Background. 
I think I stressed my second thumb joint, not the tip, the other one, from poor knitting technique several months ago. I had rested my hand and have given up knitting for months and thought it was better until I tweaked it while working in the garden. Now I have a sore thumb joint and hand, and it's hard to rest the hand effectively. One of my mantras for growing old was to take care of your feet, teeth, and eyes, and now I need to add the hands to the list of important body parts. Thanks for all you do, Karen. Karen, I'm not much of an expert on knitting, although the state of the world today certainly makes me knit my brow a lot. You certainly are wise to take care of your feet, teeth, eyes, and now hands. Life without them can be pretty hard. There are a number of possibilities here. Perhaps the most likely is that you've done damage to the ligaments that support the thumb. When they are stretched beyond their limits, they tear. If your thumb is bent backwards away from the palm during knitting, for example, this could be the problem. More commonly, it occurs from falling and breaking the fall with your hands. Most thumb sprains involve the ulnar collateral ligament, which is located on the inside of the knuckle joint. This strong band of tissue is attached to the joint you mentioned, known as the metacarpophalangeal, or MCP joint. And it keeps your thumb stable so you can pinch and grasp things. Besides breaking a fall, the ligament can be injured gradually over time from repetitive grasping or twisting activities, maybe something that goes along with knitting. A tear to this ligament can be painful and can make your thumb feel unstable. It can also weaken your ability to grasp objects between your thumb and index finger. Sprains in general are graded according to the degree of injury to the ligaments. Grade 1 sprains are considered mild, the ligaments stretch but not torn. Grade 2 are moderate, partially torn ligaments. This type of injury may include some loss of function. And grade 3 sprains, which are severe. The ligament in this case is completely torn or pulled off its attachment to the bone. If the ligament tears away from the bone, it actually can take away a small chip of bone with it. This is called an avulsion fracture and can be pretty serious. If the ulnar collateral ligament is completely torn, the end of the ruptured ligament may cause a lump or a swelling on the inside of the thumb. Your thumb joint may also feel loose and unstable. You might notice difficulty grasping things between your thumb and index finger. To help determine if the ulnar collateral ligament is damaged, you should move your thumb in different positions to test the stability of the MCP joint. If the joint is loose, painful, or unstable, that ligament may be torn. In normal times, x-rays and other radiologic studies are done to get more information. Treatment for a sprained thumb, well, that usually involves wearing a splint or cast to keep the thumb from moving while the ligament heals. This is probably your best bet, Karen. For more severe sprains, surgery may be needed to restore stability to the joint. Sprains caused by trauma will usually improve, however, with home treatment. That includes the RICE protocol, R-I-C-E, R, rest, try not to use your hand for at least a few days if you can. I for ice, apply ice immediately after the injury to keep the swelling down. Cold packs are probably better. Use cold packs for 20 minutes at a time several times a day. Compression, C, Wear an elastic compression bandage to reduce swelling and E, elevation. As often as possible, rest with your hand raised higher than your heart. Additionally, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin or ibuprofen, naproxen sodium, Aleve, Advil, things like that, can help reduce pain and swelling. When diagnosed and treated properly, most thumb sprains will heal well without complications. However, a sprained thumb that's ignored in the hope that it'll heal on its own may lead to long-term problems, including instability, weakness, and arthritis. As time goes on, older folks develop arthritis in just about every joint, and this could be also part of your problem. Moving parts suffer wear and tear, and that includes moving parts in the human body. 
One of the more common hand injuries or thumb injuries, especially among women, is carpal tunnel syndrome. Carpal tunnel injuries causes symptoms that include pain, tingling, weakness, and numbness in the thumb and also the fingers next to it. These symptoms can radiate all the way up the arm and into the shoulder. Not surprisingly, they can make gripping or pinching objects a difficult task. Another common thumb injury thought to be associated with repeated gripping motions is trigger finger or trigger thumb. Irritation of the protective sheath that surrounds the tendon of the affected thumb can cause the finger to get stuck in the bent position as someone moves the thumb or fingers. You might notice a snapping sensation or sound that brings to mind the release of a trigger. De Quervain syndrome, that refers to a thumb disorder that's characterized by inflammation of the tendons around the base of the thumb that extend into the wrist, which makes them difficult for them to pass through the tunnel at the side of the wrist as they should. This friction can cause pain around the base of the thumb and could also radiate into not only the thumb, but the forearm also. Other thumb injuries carry colorful names like skier's thumb, gamekeeper's thumb, catcher's thumb, and bowler's thumb. They're all a little different from each other, but immobilization and rest is considered in general the best conservative management. In the worst cases, surgery may be needed, though, to rebuild the ligament using tissue from even your upper arm. If there is significant arthritis, fusing the joint may be required to address both the arthritis and the instability of the MCP joint. That's Dr. Bone's opinion, but nothing takes the place of evaluation by an opinion of a qualified bone doctor or orthopedist. If it affects the quality of your life, it should be checked out sooner than later. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you believe in our mission, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, next up, let's say that you are fermenting feed for your poultry. It's good practice. Good idea. And you're doing this, and you realize that when you're done fermenting the feed and you give the grain to the birds, you have all this juice, and you're not sure what you should be doing with it. Well, let's kick that over to Nick Ferguson, who knows just a little bit about function stacking. Hey everyone, Nick Ferguson here with an answer for William on what to do with part of his waste stream from fermenting feed. But I'm also going to touch on integrated systems thinking for your farm and homestead. Hopefully I'll be able to move some things from the unknown, unknown quadrant into more of the known, known quadrant for you guys. For those of you who are familiar with that uh, theory. So... uh what are some uses for the liquid left over from fermenting livestock feed? We have a flock of 41 hens, four roosters, and two pigs. All of them are being fed fermented feed as part of their supplied food, so we have around three to four gallons of fermentation liquid every day. I'm not sure what effect this would have on a septic system, so I haven't been pouring it down the drain. I've been scattering it over the property eight or so acres so as not to put too much of it in one spot. It just feels like I'm missing an opportunity for this waste stream and I'm having trouble finding anything about it on the internet. Thank you, Jack and all, for your help. I wouldn't even have this question if it weren't for the wealth of knowledge and confidence I've gained by listening to all of you over the last few years. William. All right, excellent question and one that begs a larger question. How do we think in more of an integrated holistic paradigm for our lives? I think you're on the right track, William. Um, this is exactly the kind of thinking that we want to be having with our properties. So I know this may sound a bit far out at first, but bear with me on this one because it's, 
It's a critical key to understanding how to build interconnected systems that bolster the strength of the surrounding design elements, which increases the resiliency of the whole. Think of reinforcing rebar embedded inside concrete. It gives structure and strength to what might otherwise be a brittle construct. You follow me? All right, this is really cool. So if you don't catch all this right away, go back and listen to it a couple times because I only have a few minutes to try and explain a concept that sometimes takes years to really grasp. Um, but I'm going to do my best to kind of boil it down to the brass tacks. So we're talking about design elements that are features of the whole. Uh, let's make it simple and break it down as far as possible to kind of the kernels of truth as best I can. Y- you have chickens and pigs. I'm trying not to get too in the weeds here. Uh, the chickens and pigs, they have overlapping inputs and outputs. One of those critical components is the ecosystem wherein they exist. And this is the place they live. One of the very large but unseen factors that goes almost entirely unnoticed is the microscopic world of bacteria, protozoa, fungi, and into the larger world of the ectozoans. These are like the worms, the snails, the nematodes, beetles, other tiny crawly things. This is kind of a hard-to-see ecosystem and is enormous in biomass and effect upon the larger life forms like chickens and pigs in this example. And I know this is getting a bit technical and some of you are probably tuning out. Well, I'm geeking out on all this stuff, but I just pointed out to bring into your mind the fact that the unseen world around these animals is a larger part of their world than many of you may realize. The soil health really depends on the population of all these creatures. And with all that said, this leftover juice from fermentation is going to be absolutely swimming in fungi, yeasts, bacteria, protozoa, and other tiny creatures that make up the underpinnings of soil health. Specifically, you're probably going to find a lot of yeast and acetobacter in this uh, this f- uh, fermentation soup, this fermentation juice. Uh, there's a great deal of these creatures that would love to consume and convert the waste from your animals to animals that we're talking about into more of their kind, which will in turn die off and create, in layman's terms, the glue that holds your soil together. It will create the fertility battery in your soils that hold a great deal of what your plants need to further enrich the ecosystem in which your animals live. They're going to help create humus, and humus holds anions, and that is half of the nutrients that your plants need. So this ferment juice stuff isn't a waste stream, it's a resource, and I can almost guarantee There are areas where your chickens and pigs leave fertility behind, and these areas probably stink because of an imbalance in soil biology. You have a void of life. It's not balanced. And if you're a good steward of the ecosystem, you will seek to even out those imbalances and, you know, bring harmony, man. But really, the stink from the manure is oftentimes from ammonia off-gassing. And that ammonia is the building block of protein That's an excellent source of nitrogen that makes protein that all those little tiny creatures need to build more of themselves. And when they do that, they're going to eventually die and make more soil. So bring the starving microorganisms in your fermentation soup to the food. They convert it quicker. You have less stinky mess. The soil is healthier, and the animals are healthier too. It's a win-win-win. So that's what we're kind of looking for is... How can we bring these elements together in a healthy, symbiotic manner 
so that they're each benefiting the rest. And if we, if we get too stuck into the one plus one equals two system of thinking, um, and just looking at the macro items and ignoring all of the rest of the components that make up the whole living system that we're dealing with, if we just look at chickens eat fermented grains, pigs eat fermented grains, they make poop, uh, I have trash now, what do I do with it? Well, I, you know, some people have the mindset of, okay, I scoop up all the poop and I put it in plastic bags and have it hauled off to a landfill because that's bad. The same kind of thing you know, will happen with any other kind of a waste stream. So instead of automatically thinking this is trash, think this is probably really beneficial and I probably just don't realize where it's not beneficial. And I understand that's why you called in the question. But uh, I'm trying to kind of illustrate this greater point of how can we just kind of sit down and just kind of look at the whole system all of the components and say, who needs this? And that's the kind of thinking that makes an entrepreneur really successful versus not, is is looking at, okay, I see a resource here. How can I get it to someone who needs it or wants it? And by doing that, we can create lots of value. And so if we use that same mindset with our homesteads, with something as simple as the juice from fermented grains, that's a fantastic win. So the TLDL, the too long didn't listen takeaway from this is use the fermentation juice as a diluted spray on your manure and bedding to eat the stink, make good soil. You can use it on your garden areas. You can use it underneath fruit trees and fodder trees, all kinds of stuff like that. You know, a, a few gallons a day on a quarter of an acre is nothing. So don't get too stressed out about that. You don't have to be spreading it all over the place. So I know that explanation was a bit convoluted and technical, but I find, you know, if you understand the reason behind the thing you're doing, it can help. So with all that said, I hope this answer builds a little bit of confidence and gives all of you you know, maybe a little bit more understanding of how to connect elements in your design, as well as how to think about the materials going into your systems and coming out of them. Almost everything can be recycled and used to increase resiliency on your property. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com and RarePlantStore.com. Do good things. So next up, we have a bit of a grab bag for Tim Toolman Cook on expanding handyman services, specifically during the fall, a little bit on pool cleaning and some other stuff, too. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to answer a couple of more questions for the expert council, so let's dive right in. Alright guys, so this question comes from Matthew over on MeWe, and he wanted me to discuss different essential lawn care tools for the upcoming fall season and services that a person can offer as a handyman in the fall season. So I thought I'd put together a top five services that we offer in our handyman business that make us money and could be a good side hustle or full-time gig opportunity for you guys. So the five I've got is final shrub and tree trimming, window cleaning, gutter cleaning, which is probably my favorite, winterizing properties and campers, and just putting away seasonal items for customers, that kind of stuff. So the first one, of course, is the final shrub and tree trimming. And that's the type of thing where you just go in, give it a quick little haircut, and put the shrub, the hedges, the trees to bed for the winter. 
It doesn't take a lot to have on hand. Honestly, I started with, well, like the Brutus the Barber Beefcake hand shears, and then I moved up to a $29 Home Depot electric hedge trimmer. So you can start with something like that, and if you want to move up to my famous DeWalt cordless hedge trimmers, they're more than powerful enough, or eventually you can go into a gas model if you're looking at it. But all you need is something to trim them with, a rake to clean it up, and some sort of blower to clean up your mess when you're done. Not a lot. A lot of people have that stuff on hand already, and it's a great money-making service. Another one, of course, as you guys have heard me talk about a ton, is window cleaning. Practice at home, get started, but in my area especially, not so much in the where it's really warm and you can clean them all year round, but a lot of customers get you in for one last window cleaning before it gets too cold to really effectively clean the windows. And what do you need for that? A squeegee, a scrubber, a bucket, some blue Dawn dish soap, and you're off to the races. You know, about 30 bucks for a, um, a normal intro kit, and then you can upgrade your gear after that. But if you're looking to, you know, make a little bit of side hustle money before it gets too cold to do it, get out and do the fall, the last window cleaning for people. And number three for us, probably my favorite, I do a ton of this, 30 or 40 of them in October usually, but gutter cleaning. What do you need for that? If you own a ladder, you can do it. The rest of it is just up ladder, down ladder, repeat, scoop the garbage out of the eaves, Put it in a bucket, carry it down. As long as you're clean and careful and don't make a mess and wash everything out when you're done, the customers are going to be happy. And honestly, like I said, if you have a ladder and possibly a little hand scoop like a garden trowel and a garden hose, that's all you need to start doing eve cleaning for people. And you can upgrade after that. But honestly, that's about all there is to gutter cleaning. Winterizing properties and campers, that sort of thing, seasonal properties, It's a little more of a specialty service. There might be people, I'm sure there's people out in the audience who do this sort of thing, but you need a little bit of practice. So if you already have a camper and it's something you're already doing, great. Why not offer it for other people? There's a bit of liability involved in it, but it's doable. I do it for the banks all the time. And if you have a compressor for blowing the lines out, great. And a little pump to pump the antifreeze in and you're all set. Just take your time, go to each outlet, Open them up, vent them, let them bleed until you see the pink antifreeze come out and make sure you do it everywhere and then go around and dump it in each of the traps in the sinks and that's all there is to it. Take some time, watch some videos, don't just go on this little bit of advice, but it's definitely a service you can offer. And another one that, you know, is so simple and so easy to do is just general labor for customers. I have a couple of customers who every year call us up to get us to come out and say, hey, can you set up my back seasonal area? So we, we put out their, you know, their lawn furniture and their fire pits and all of that sort of stuff. And then we repeat the process in reverse in the fall. We go out and we put everything away, carefully stack it and store it for storage, make sure there's nothing with water in it, drain all that sort of thing. And that's all there is to it. I mean, literally, if you have a strong enough back that you can pick things up and move things around for customers, you can be out there and making money for them. So that's my top five money-making services for the fall season. I hope that helped. If you got any follow-up questions on what kind of gear I use in that area, send them along to me. Uh, follow up with me at therealtimcook at gmail.com. Okay, and today's second question comes from Paul over on YouTube, and he wanted to know what my thoughts were on keeping an above-ground pool clean, if I had any tools or recommended products that'll make his life a little bit easier. Well, Paul, if you follow me on social media and that sort of thing, you know I'm a big fan of spending your time up front setting up systems that you don't have to worry about down the road or eliminating as much work as possible. 
The first summer we ran an above ground pool, it was a mess. It was hard to keep clean. So a few things that I have found that have worked really well for me is the Intex rechargeable pool vacuum. It's awesome. It's so much better than any kind of homemade redneck version that I've tried before. The battery life on it's incredible, and what it does really, really well is it gets that fine sediment off the bottom of the pool, the kind of stuff that the kids kick up every time they get in there and make a huge mess. Number two, uh, we just upgraded this year to a sand filter from a normal, uh, just those Intex cartridge filters that I had to scrub and clean and basically pressure wash out every single day. Now I'm down to about every two weeks. I just need to backwash it quickly. It's a little bit of an investment. I'll include links to all this stuff uh, for Jack so he can put them in the uh, episode description, but it has been a huge time saver for me. That's the biggest one. And if there's a single product that I use all the time, it's the Clorox Clarifier. So every so often, if you've got just kind of a cloudy look to a pool and you need to knock that stuff out, I find this chlor, I, I have tried a ton of different clarifiers for above ground pools for customers and myself. And the Clorox one, Amazon has it, works incredibly. It just attaches itself to the floating stuff in the pool, knocks it to the ground and allows either the filter or the vacuum to pick it up. So I hope that helped. That's it for me, guys. Don't forget to drop by toolmantim.co where you can find out everything there is to know about what I have to offer. The five videos a week I put out, tool reviews, money-making ideas, and everything in between. And especially check out the weekend workshop series where I try to have more of a preparedness bend where I show some new products that I've tested out and some really cool off-the-wall ideas. So thanks, guys. Keep sending the questions into Jack. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right, guys, next up, Dr. Ken Berry on dealing with egg allergies. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry. Today I'm taking a question from Miles. Miles says, what suggestions do you have for those with an egg allergy? As a child, I was told and had an, I had an allergy to egg whites, and when I got into my 20s, I was tested again to find out that I had an allergy to egg yolks. I was told that it's not severe, but I try to avoid eggs by themselves. What would you suggest to do to get the protein needed with the proper human diet? Great question, Miles. So the first thing I want to address is the egg allergy thing. Very often, someone's eating so much junk in their diet that it's got their entire system inappropriately inflamed, and this can confuse your immune system and cause it to start attacking things, such as real human food, that you eat, and also ultimately attacking cells in your own body. And your immune system should never attack any of these two things, but they get very confused when you have things like leaky gut syndrome, which is caused by eating lots of processed junk food. Uh, many people notice that they have a, a mild reaction to egg whites. Virtually all these people can eat egg yolks, and they have no problem with this at all. Most people, as they decrease the highly processed junk out of their diet and the excess carbohydrates and the excess fructose, they notice that foods that they used to be, quote-unquote, allergic to, they, they don't have a reaction to it anymore. It's almost as if removing the junk food from their diet cured their allergy to real food. Uh, Jack also brings up the interesting point that many people who are allergic to chicken eggs can eat duck eggs or uh, quail eggs or other uh, eggs from other poultry and do just fine. And each each one of these eggs has a uh, specific 
proteins in them that the other ones don't. So I would try different eggs. I would try to eat just the yolks. Just because you had a test at your doctor's office that said you're allergic to egg yolks, if you can eat egg yolks and you don't notice any reaction, then you can eat egg yolks. It's fine. Also, it doesn't matter whether you eat the eggs by themselves or whether you mix them in other things. If you're allergic, you're allergic. You're going to have a reaction. So don't, if you're not having any reaction to egg yolks, I would enjoy them every day and maybe try some of Jack's duck eggs rather than chicken eggs. This is Dr. Barry. Thanks a lot. Well, what he ended with there is kind of where I want to start, and that's perfect, and I don't think Ken knew that when he did it, but it just works out that way. So let's start out with the fact that we do sell duck eggs, and I don't have any for you. I mean, we literally sell every egg almost as fast as it comes out of the duck's butt. Um, And we have had people that have problems with eggs of all types come get our eggs, eat them, and have no problem at all. Some of our most loyal customers, they're to the point where we almost feel bad when we don't have product for them because... They've come to rely so heavily on us for that. But I think there's 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 three possibilities if you try that approach, and it'll lead me to the other thing that I think often happens here that we confuse as a duck egg allergy or I'm an egg allergy. So if the person is legitimately allergic to some constituent within an egg, and that constituent within the egg is present in both duck eggs and chicken eggs, and they have a legitimate allergy, like they're just a person that can't eat it, like Ken said, no matter what happens, it's not going to change that. Yeah, I think you, there is also something to the fact that we can have reactions to foods that we shouldn't have reactions to because our system is disrupted with all types of other crap that we shouldn't be eating. And when we purge those things from our diet long enough, we find we, and that'll happen too. But that doesn't explain... My customer that comes here and goes to the store and buys an egg and eats it and has a bad reaction to it, comes here, buys my egg, and doesn't. I believe, and in fact I know, there are some constituents in chicken eggs that are not in duck eggs and vice versa. And so it is possible the person would have a reaction to chicken eggs and not duck eggs. And that's, a, that's one of the other things that we can be looking at, right? But then there's a third component. Are there constituents in the egg that do not belong in the egg in the first place, or are they inflated in, 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 in their, their concentration? And I've talked about this before, but an egg is an ovum. It's what it is. One of, that, that's what we're looking at, basically, right? So a chicken, a duck, whatever, they have some, just like a woman, they produce a certain amount in their lifetime, and when they're gone, they go through what we call in, in women menopause, or people creatively call in, in chickens henopause, and there's no more eggs. And based on the whole purpose of an egg, and based on it coming from a female, we know there's going to be estrogen in an egg. And if we feed the animal excessive estrogens or phytoestrogens, which might as well just be estrogens, or they're often called to make them sound more healthy for you, isoflavins, then that animal will, in fact, and I have concrete proven, I don't have time to look it up today, but you have to trust me here, concrete proven scientific research by researchers that think it's a good thing that if you feed soy to birds, When they lay an egg, they have much higher isoflavins in them, or a.k.a. phytoestrogens, which are just estrogens in a different form. And your body doesn't know the difference and treats them as estrogens. 
So where I'm going with this is I've had people come here and buy our duck eggs. And when we didn't have product available, went and got somebody else's duck eggs and had the same reaction they did to the chicken eggs. And I am almost 100%. I'm not 100%. I'm all, like 99% on it is about feeding soy-free food to the animals. That So here's the other thing. Like he's, the, the gentleman that wrote in and asked about this said he's been tested for egg allergies. I don't know exactly what kind of test, but the most common way that we test for allergies is that we'll, and it looks really horrific the way it's done. It's like there's all these little needles and all these different substances on them, and we like put them on somebody's back and put these little poke holes in them. And then after a certain amount of time, you look at the little place you poked a hole in the skin, and if there's a reaction there, we say, oh, this person's allergic to grass, or this person's allergic to corn, or this person is allergic to egg, okay? Well, if you have a reaction that we call allergy, because we don't have another response to it, to excessive estrogens, And the egg substance used in that allergy test, I don't know this, I'm surmising this, came from, you know, an egg that was, you know, from an animal that was fed soy. It's going to have, you're basically testing then for sensitivity to egg and for sensitivity to estrogen. And uh, what I don't know, and I'm not sure about this, but it'd be interesting, and it would prove a lot if a person generally has egg white allergy but not egg yolk allergy, it'd be interesting to know where the higher estrogen content is in an egg. I haven't researched that yet, but I'm going to. But I would say that the number one thing that people can do if they're having any kind of egg sensitivity, and of course don't ever do anything that puts you at physical risk of harm, like people have severe reactions, be careful, eat small amounts, etc., but Getting simply off soy-based egg, to me, is one of the biggest things we can do. And I also agree with Dr. Ken that getting onto the proper diet in the first place may reduce what you perceive as allergies that are just actually combination effects. Like, it's amazing to me that science is as stupid as it is. And I know that sounds arrogant, but it's, but it's not. It just think about it. You're, you're, you're telling a person you're allergic to this thing. But you're not testing it in isolation to all the other things they're consuming. You don't know if it's the combination of two things together. There's people that can eat substance A, and if they wait long enough and they eat substance B, they have no reaction to either. And if they eat them at the same time, they have a reaction. This is, I mean, that's kind of your first rule in science is to, to, to say that a thing is the problem, you have to isolate the thing. It's hard to do with a human diet, but... That's one of the things that's really great about what Ken calls a proper human diet or even things like the paleo diet. They're diets of elimination. So we can go down to a very narrow window of what we allow for a time, and that's a good cleansing thing anyway. And then we can start adding back things that are okay within that diet's regime. And then we're able to be much more clear about where the problems lie. So those are my additional thoughts on that one. Next up, what about some Korean barbecue? That sounds pretty damn good. Chef Keith Snow. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and Food Storage Feast. Wanted to give you guys and gals out there in TSP land a little quick idea for your barbecue grill over the weekend. So you've probably noticed that steak and a lot of protein costs are really going through the roof. So a good cut to look for, which makes excellent Korean barbecue, is something called shoulder flap. And uh, you can find this, those of you that shop in Costco, 
they usually have pretty good deals on um, somewhat bulk quantities of shoulder flap. And this is a meat that's got a lot of connective tissue, comes from a part of the animal that does a lot of work. So when you cook it and those uh, connective tissues slowly melt, and most importantly, you slice it against the grain, and I can't uh, stress that enough, you have to look at which way the grains are going and you have to slice against that. So not perpendicular with it, uh, or no, excuse me, not parallel, but perpendicular, if that makes sense. Anyway, let's talk about a basic marinade here. So when you're talking about Korean barbecue, every grandma has a different recipe, but um, a lot of them have similar ingredients. So what you'll do is this will probably marinate, you know, two, two and a half pounds of meat. Take a bowl, three tablespoons of dark toasted sesame oil, three tablespoons of low-sodium soy sauce. Um, that usually has a green cap on the on the bottle. Two green onions minced, half teaspoon of white pepper. Very important to have white pepper. It's a very specific sort of barnyard smell that I absolutely love. Four tablespoons of your favorite chili paste, sriracha, whatever whatever you want to use. Um, next would be sugar. So two tablespoons brown sugar or even better is coconut sugar. I suppose if you're completely worried about the sugar, you could leave it out. But this is a marinade that's going to serve, you know, four or five people. So two tablespoons of sugar is not really going to give you that many carbs to worry about. Um, three tablespoons of seasoned rice wine vinegar. And you usually find these in clear bottles. Um, near the soy sauce. This is very good stuff to have on hand. You can just toss it over lettuce leaves and, and uh, eat it just like that. You don't even need uh, much else. It's very flavorful stuff. And then lastly, one inch of ginger, finely minced up. You can take all these ingredients, throw them into your Vitamix, whatever, and uh, blitz it together. And then you want to you know, maybe do a zip bag or Better yet, a stainless steel or glass bowl. Put your meat in there, pour this marinade over it. And you can do this, you know, four or five hours would be great. And then when it's done, you grill your meat to your liking. And then, again, this is meat that in order to cut it across the grain, because it's going to be a long piece similar to a flank steak, and you can use flank steak, by the way, no problem. You can also use skirt steak. Um, so once you cut it, you'll cut it into smaller pieces and then cut it against the grain. And if you do that, it's going to be awesome. Now, to top that off, I usually will take avocado mayonnaise and fermented chili paste and um, put those into a bowl and whip them together. And then I like to put them in a squirt bottle and I'll grill this meat, slice it, put it on a platter, and then um, drizzle it with this wonderful sort of... Um, pepper mayonnaise, garnish it with sesame seeds, maybe some more green onions on top, you know, cut on the bias, and you bring that out and people are going to freak out. It's very delicious, super easy to make. So I hope you guys and gals give that a shot and uh, tag me on Instagram, instagram.com slash harvest eating. Also wanted to throw this out, those of you that are interested in um, seeing what's in the, inside the food storage feast course, go over to Harvest Eating. You surf on that website for a minute, a pop-up box will appear. Just put in your uh, email address and you'll get credentials to get into the food storage feast mini course. No credit card, no nothing. And then if you decide later that you want to 
enroll, you can use the coupon code SAVE50. So SAVE50, that will save you $50. If you're in the MSB, um, check in there for a coupon code or email me, keithsnow at gmail.com. And I've got a very large discount for all you MSB members, and thanks for supporting TSP because it is an awesome resource. The more I listen to this show, the more I learn. And, um, yeah, so I appreciate everybody out there. Hope you all have a great weekend. It's been Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Take care. All right, and with that, let's uh, let's talk about our quote of the day today as I wrap things up with the anchor segment. Um, I've heard versions of this quote set different ways, but often meaning pretty much uh, the same thing. Most of the things worth doing in the world have been declared impossible before they were done. And the person that said that version of this was a uh, associate justice of the Supreme Court, Louis D. Brandeis. And uh, setting aside our agreements and disagreements with Mr. Brandeis, let's just talk about this one statement here that I completely agree with. It is almost inevitable that something that people just naturally assume is doable, even someone hasn't done it yet, isn't hard. It doesn't have any level of effort that really is needed to get over the hurdle, so to speak. And if you think about everything that anybody ever did that made the world better, even in a small way, let alone a huge way, it was something that either people said was impossible or it was seen as so impossible nobody even really theorized about it. Um. And yet kids do it all the time. I remember when I was a little kid, I thought I had the greatest idea in the world. And, of course, I was a little kid, so I didn't know, like, having an idea doesn't mean anything if you can't execute on it. I was telling people, I got this idea. You can make a watch that's like a video game. It have little cartridges in it, and then you could play video games like we do on Atari. And that was an Atari 2600, just to date myself there, folks. Um Old school Atari. The best game ever on it was a game called River Raid, and it was pretty damn pedestrian by today's uh, video game stuff. But I thought this was an incredible idea, and it didn't matter to me that the the chipsets and everything necessary to make an interactive game worth playing that small didn't exist. And while nobody's really done it with a watch, because let's face it, I was in fifth grade or fourth grade when I thought of this, that's not a very big screen. Um, there's tons of compact video games today. They don't even need these cartridges anymore. We have download capabilities, cloud-based services, etc. Like, that's a thing that, like, adults kind of just, I remember being a kid talking about it, yeah, whatever. Like, they're not going to do that. It's too complicated. It's not worth it. And that's just take, it's taken for granted as being something obvious today. But in general, it wasn't even being talked about. It took a kid, you know, not saying I was the only one, plenty of, oh, we all thought of that, right? The kids all wanted something like that. Um, and it came from the idea we had, remember the Casio watches with the calculator built into them? And you get one and think, I'm going to get away with using it in a math test because they won't take it from me because this is a watch. And teachers figured that out pretty quick because, well, when you're a kid, you're not very smart when it comes to things like that. Um, but there's always been this this propensity of people to just sort of write off things as dreaming to the point where, and I find this to be kind of a sad state of human affairs, the term dreamer is now uh, commonly used in our vernacular to insult people. Not aggress- It's more of a passive-aggressive insult if you, if you think about it. Oh, he's just a dreamer. You know, that's a great dream. 
I remember some of the things I said I was going to accomplish when I was, when I was young, and I'm talking like you know early 20s here, and some of like my, my contemporary, one of my contemporary's moms, for instance, say, oh, that's a nice dream. And, and she, she said it, she sounded nice, but for those of you that are from the South, you'll know what I mean. She said it the kind of the way that we uh, down here in Texas and all across the South will say to somebody, well, bless your heart. Right, it's like the most passive-aggressive, nicest way you can call somebody a dumbass. There is, is bless your heart. If you didn't know that, you're probably not from Texas or Georgia or someplace like that. Um, and, and so that was the case, you know. That you'd say, "Well, I'm going to do this," and then you go do that thing, and then the person says, "You're lucky. You got lucky, or whatever." And this is the case in, at the individual level, and it's the case at the big level. If somebody had told you in 1985 when the first cell phones were coming out and they were this giant bricks that only the wealthy could afford, that in less than 20 years these things would become small, compact computers that we carry around in our pocket, and even little kids would have one, and everybody on earth one way or another would be able to afford one, and they would enable you to, to, to use uh, a, a, a teleconferencing, and you would have to explain what that was across the planet for no money, let alone all the other shit that a cell phone does today. It's really not. We shouldn't even call them cell phone. That's why people call them mobile devices. I just think we should call them computers. They're just a type of computer, but we think of a computer being something with a keyboard and a big screen. But that's what your phone is. Your phone is a computer today that everybody would be walking around with a very small portable computer about the size of uh, a deck of cards uh, cut in half and then connected back together long ways. And, and it would have the power that it does. It's not possible. There's no way that can exist. When people first started talking about men flying, that couldn't be done. It wasn't going to happen. It, no way we could do it. When we were going to go to the moon, people said there's no way this could happen. And, and the place that it really hits us today is not technology anymore. It really isn't technology anymore. I, I think we've hit this kind of this this point, this eventuality in technology where actually it's it's the other way around. Now we think we're so sure that some technology will come along that will fix a problem. We don't even have to worry about the problem anymore. We've gone too far with it, I think. And I think those technologies will come along, but if the problem is going to affect us in our lifetime, that doesn't mean the, the technology solution will come in our lifetime. So we maybe we need another solution until that technology gets here. But the place where we now talk, and I hear it all the time, and I hear it amongst the people, I should hear it amongst the least, liberty community, and getting things done for liberty and freedom. You have the perpetual freebaser of the drug known as hopium that thinks we're going to vote our way out of these problems. But it seems like many people, once they give up the hopium, they also give up hope. And so when we say we can do these things, they come up with a hundred reasons they won't let you. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I hear the terms, they won't let me or they'll never let you do that in a, in a week let alone a month or a year. It, it, it's probably the most common negative phrase that I hear, and I hear a lot of negative shit. I, I'm told I'm stupid all the time, and I don't know what I'm talking about. And that, I'm not complaining. That just I'm just kind of put it in perspective. When you're a public personality and you get to a certain level of being able to reach people, you're going to get a lot of criticism. That's okay. But I'm saying out of all that negativity, there's probably more... They won't let you, combined with they won't let me, rebuttals, then all the rest of it put together. It makes up half of the total negativity that I hear that insults everything from my idea to my person. 
It, it, and it's it, that doesn't bother me because you telling me I'm stupid doesn't prevent you from achieving anything. I'm okay with it. But when you tell me they won't let me, well, they won't let you what? And I, it's amazed me. I always ask people, well, have you tried? No, because they won't let me. Well, how do you know they won't let you if you haven't tried? Well, it says it's against the law. Well, have you thought of another way you can do it? You know, well, they'll just stop me. They'll just take it from me. Down to I've heard people tell me they don't want a garden. And the reason they don't want a garden is that when when we get to the, the shit hitting the fan, whatever the hell that means to them, the New World Order comes or whatever, um, that people will just steal all their tomatoes and peppers so there's no point in having a garden. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it's, it's basically a version of this thing that you're proposing as a solution won't work. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I think that we need to take a more nuanced look at things when it comes to where we put our energy. Almost anything's possible, but is it in my best interest for me to do it? That's a completely reasonable adult way to come across something. There's plenty of things I could do, but if I'm doing them, I'm not doing something else. So we all have to decide what what is the right thing for us to be doing. What is the right place for us to invest our time, our effort, and our energy. And so I could learn to speak German. I just don't think it's really going to benefit me very much. And I'd rather right now, uh, I'm, I'm pretty enamored and wrapped up with researching and learning about ancient civilizations because that interests me. So I'm making a decision there. Now, no one would say that I can't learn German or that I can't learn about ancient civilizations, that those are impossible You know, they're not a thing worth doing that has been declared impossible. But the mindset is actually the same. People make excuses all the time for not doing things that they claim they want to do or that they should do or that they know they should do. It's a, we're, we live in a constant world of excuse making. And when it scales up to they won't let me do that, that thing you're talking about is impossible, there's no way that can ever work. It's just the same excuse making principle just at a higher level. And the, the, I really believe there are, primarily at the macro level, two types of people in the world. There's pessimists and optimists. And a lot of times a pessimist can sound like an optimist or an optimist can sound like a pe pessimist. Because you can be an optimist and you can also be real. Uh, on, on last week's episode of Unloose the Goose, when we were talking, Nicole and, and the rest of us were talking about, you know, kind of, well, you can just do it anyway. And I said, well, in some instances, some of the stuff we're talking about, you can't just do it. Like, there was some of the, I won't get into the discussion, but it was like, okay, if you do the thing that we're talking about doing and you just go out and do it, they will put you in a place called Club Fed and you won't like it. There are ways to do most of it, but you can't just do it. Like that's not being pessimistic; that's being a realist. And, and I, you know, I've seen this little meme, and it's three glasses that are half full of a yellow liquid, and it says, "Pessimist, I'm half empty," and it says, "Optimist" for the middle glass, and little, and it's like a little face on the glass, like a glass is like a character in a Disney movie. And it says, "I'm half full." And the last one is a realist, and it says, I think this is piss. I think the realist can be married with either optimism or pessimism. But I, I don't know that that's true, because I think if you're a realist, you're going to end up tending toward optimism. Because the realist is going to require that litmus test of realism 
every place they go with an idea. Can this thing work? Well, probably not. But how can it work? Well, this is an obstacle. That's realism. But what if you're actually going to be a realist, you're also going to say, but does that mean the thing can't happen? Well, no, I have to find another way. So I think realism is often confused with pessimism, but realism is the pathway to optimism. We absolutely should be realists. One of my favorite quotes from the Bible, I'm not a guy that quotes the Bible very often, but it's uh, 1 Corinthians 13, I think. Um, When I was a child, I talked as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways... I put the ways of childhood behind me, right? That, you know, it is time to speak and think and act and be as a man, not a child, when you grow up. And I think that's being a realist. But the people that do the most in life, they grow into a man, a real man or a woman. And they, they have that coming of age that I talked about with our guest last week when we talked about mental conditioning and program. That coming of age actually happens. And there's a whole different travesty in that not occurring in our young people today, people being 24 years old and still behaving like children. So you do need to come of age. But once you come of age, that it, that's part of that is becoming realistic. But then there's a creativity of the child that envisions the thing that just because I can think of it means that somebody can probably do it, and usually that kid ends up being right. And there's an optimism there. And it's the people that come of age, develop the realism, but don't let that push away the optimism that actually gets shit done worth doing in the world. And that's why that most things that have been worth doing were declared impossible before they were done. Because most people don't make that leap. They either fail to ever move into the world of realism that is about coming of age and accepting your responsibility as a human being on this planet as it pertains to yourself and others. And do so without becoming beat down by the very system itself to the point of being a pessimist. And if you look at the average person, if you want to know how the average person, their mental conditioning, what the condition of their mental state is, go to a big box store at a time when it's busy and walk around and look at the faces of the people there. Look at the defeatism in their face. Look at how they look. They look sick. And as much as they're sick because of the food that they're eating, As much as they're sick because of the society they live in, they're sick also because their mental state is one of defeatism. And they're the person that will tell you it's impossible. Do you know the real reason we say things are impossible? It's an excuse-making thing, just like I said earlier. It's to give us an excuse as to why we don't contribute to the solution. So as we wrap up, last show of the week for the... uh, Miyagi Morning's uh, recap that you guys will get tomorrow. That's where I want to end. You really are at a point in our existence where those of us who can think a little bit beyond the average everyday person needs to figure out what place and in what way can I play a role in making the world a little bit better. 
And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be some great name remembered someday. That's not important. That's not important. I'm sure that as much as, as, as I have an impact on people's lives today, it won't be that long before the, you know, almost no one knows who the hell Jack Spierko ever was. In the timeline of humanity, it's, it's going to be a pretty short-lived uh, little micro-component of fame. I'm okay with that. Because it's the things that we do and the ripple effects we put in place that matter way more than anybody knowing who it was that started that, that impact. And every single one of us can do that if we'll remember that literally nothing is impossible. There's literally nothing that is impossible. If we can conceive it, I do believe we can do it. I don't know that, mean that, that doesn't mean we can do it in a human lifetime, or even ten. But I believe just about anything we can come up with, we can figure a way out how to do sooner or later. And that journey alone often leads to many other victories and many other positive impacts on the world. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with uh, our song of the day today. Today's song of the day, and kind of keeping with the theme of this week, is uh, basically a protest song about all of the crap that government's done during these lockdowns and COVID-19 restrictions and things like that. Once again, we're hearing from Van Morrison this week. The song's basically called No More Lockdowns. And it's amazing to me, this song apparently triggered the shit out of people, you know. Uh, they've said that, you know, Van Morrison is living in a fantasy land or something like that. And I think if you listen to this song, you realize it is a big old helping dose of reality. And it's the song I covered a couple weeks ago from Aaron Lewis uh, that I pointed out. I think the thing that triggers people the most is when they hear the truth, but they don't like it. So since they can't refute the truth, they respond with emotion and anger and outrage, as though outrage alone is a refutation of fact. That's a sad world that we live in. It kind of fits in with my quote of the day, which is why I picked it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. No more fascist bullies disturbing our peace. No more taking of our freedom And our God-given rights Pretending it's for our safety When it's really to enslave Who's running our country? Who's running our world? Examine it closely And watch it unfurl No more lockdown No more threats No more imperial college Scientists making up crooked facts No more lockdown No more pulling the wool over our eyes Celebrities telling us Telling us what we're supposed to feel No more status quo Put your shoulder to the wind No more lockdown No more lockdown No more lockdown No more lockdown no more luck.
government overreach. No more fascist bullies disturbing our peace. No more taking our freedom and our God-given rights. Pretending it's for our safety when it's really too enslaved. And watch it unfurl No more lockdown No more threats No more imperial college scientists Making up crooked facts No more lockdown No more pulling the wound over our eyes No more celebrities telling us how we're supposed to feel. No more status quo. Gotta put your shoulder to the wheel. 